Welcome to Health or Consequences, a monthly podcast by Mass Inc. and Commonwealth Magazine. My name is John McDonough. I'm with the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston. And my co-host is Paul Haddis, formerly of the Tufts University School of Medicine, now with the Lown Institute. And we are happy to welcome you. Today, we're going to be considering whether Massachusetts should learn anything from the Maryland healthcare cost control model. Uh, does Maryland have anything to teach Massachusetts about how to do a better job controlling costs, uh, particularly as people are starting to look at some weaknesses in the model that we've had for roughly the past nine to 10 years now. Our guest, we couldn't have had a better person, is Dr. Josh Sharfstein uh, from the uh, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore. Dr. Sharfstein is a graduate of Harvard Medical School in 1996. He worked at Boston City Hospital with uh, the eminent Dr. Barry Zuckerman uh, back in the late 1980s and so forth. Uh, right now, he's the Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at Johns Hopkins. He's also Director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative and a Professor of Practice in their Department of Health Policy and Management. Previously, he served as secretary of the Maryland Department of Mental Health, of Health and Mental Hygiene, sorry, and principal deputy commissioner at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as well as commissioner of public health for Baltimore City, and also a long-serving health policy advisor for Congressman Henry Waxman, one of the legends of health policy in the United States over many, many years. So, Thank you, Josh, for being with us. It's a real pleasure to welcome you. And I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Paul. Have us. Josh, let me add my words of welcome. Never have we had probably such an informed guest on health policy. So uh, we really do look forward to this conversation today. For our podcast audience, perhaps we can get started by briefly outlining sort of a little bit about the history and evolution of the Maryland uh, approach, which we often call here, at least in, in, in refer to it as the, as the rate setting approach in healthcare, including its evolution to include hospital global budgets, which I believe went into effect in 2019. So please uh, uh, share that with our audience, if you would. Sure. And thanks to both of you for having me and for Massachusetts paying a little bit of attention to the old line state, Maryland. Um, so um, Maryland has had rate setting uh, since the late 1970s. And of course, as someone from public health, I think of healthcare policy, not just about controlling costs, but also about improving outcomes and enhancing the health of the population. So I'll be talking about that alongside controlling costs. Um, but basically Maryland, like a number of other states, um, had a, a program for setting what hospitals could charge. And Maryland uh, uniquely um, was able to include Medicare in that um, and Medicaid and really be truly all payer. So there is a commission in the state of Maryland that uh, essentially set the rate for what hospitals were allowed to charge. Now, it's really important to understand this point. It wasn't that they said like, here's the price for an appendectomy anywhere in the state of Maryland. They gave a different rate card to each hospital based on their costs, based on whether they were a teaching hospital, based on a few other factors. And, um, but every payer paid off that individual hospital rate card. So if an appendectomy cost $10,000 at Johns Hopkins, that was the rate that 
Blue Cross paid. It was the rate charged to someone without insurance. It was the rate that Medicare paid. Plus or minus a little bit. Everything is a little bit confusing, but I would just say that, that that's the easiest and most clear way to understand how Maryland's system worked. And it worked like that for many years. Um, now, uh, what happened um, starting in really about 2010 was that uh, there were a bunch of interesting um, experiments that were being done with how to use rate setting to design other payment approaches. And the reason this was done is rate setting had some really great advantages. One of the things that it did for all those decades was it helped pay for the care of the uninsured. There was like a 7% charge on every single bill. All that money got pooled in and it went back out to the hospitals that were caring for the uninsured. Another great thing was medical education expenses were built in for certain hospitals and all payers paid them, not just Medicare. And so um, there, there were other innovative quality programs, different things that were done. Um, but uh, it still wasn't helping some small rural hospitals do well because they were seeing declining volumes. And it was a fundamentally fee-for-service rate setting system. There were some experiments done where the rates were basically built into global budgets. And the way that works, these, these small hospitals negotiated a budget with the rate setting system and got to change their rates over the course of the year to hit the budget. The way I would explain this to people is I would say like, say the budget was $100 and they were expecting $10 per admission, then they were allowed to charge on their rate card $10 per admission because they thought that it would be, they were expecting, you know, it would, they would be expecting 10 admissions, they could charge $10 for each one to get to $100. But if they were getting more, they'd have to start charging less. Or if they were getting fewer admissions coming in than anticipated, they'd have they'd be able to charge more. And at the end, they'd still get that $100. So that was using rate setting to accomplish a global budget. And we saw some really interesting things in that, that the hospital started doing things differently. They started asking, how can we keep people from coming into the hospital? And um, in 2014, not 2019, the whole state shifted over to global uh, budgets. There was an agreement with CMS for Maryland to control all hospital costs um, and beat the national rate of growth. And the way that Maryland would accomplish that would be by moving the hospitals to global budgets. That was something I was very involved in negotiating. There was a second model that was approved for, um, I think around 2019. And that um, more explicitly talks about the total cost of care. I'm sure we'll get into this more, but also has this aspect of hospital global budgeting. So that's kind of, kind of the system. And, and the way that those budgets are made are kind of like that initial pilot. You know, the hospitals have some ability to move their rates around in order to hit a budget that's negotiated with the rate setting commission. And that gives a very different set of incentives to the hospital, which have very important, um, I think, implications for health and not just cost control. So that's really helpful, Josh. Why don't we bottom line it? Um, give us uh, the headline bragging rights for Maryland in terms of how well this model has done. How do we know that it's achieving great results? And what can you tell us about those results? Sure. So the, those first five years, starting in 2014, uh, Maryland hit all the benchmarks, the major benchmarks that were set up with the federal government. Um, uh, I think the savings number was about a um, billion dollars, close to a billion dollars. And that was not just against the Medicare trend, but um, with a match control that was done by RTI uh, looking at that. We saw um, su substantial reduction in readmissions. Um, Maryland came from, I think, above the national average to below the national average, improvements in quality, 
um, and significant declines in preventable admissions, which is one of the really important, I think, community health aspects of the model. And, you know, there's also some obvious uh, points about how the model has maintained a lot of support. I mean, there are not that many models in health that achieve their goals, were proposed by a Democratic governor and approved by a Democratic president, reproposed by a Republican governor and reapproved by a Republican president, and really maintain an enormous amount of support. So not just in the hospital industry, but among different uh, groups of patient advocates and um, outpatient groups, and just generally people in Maryland feel a lot of pride about the way the healthcare system is organized. Now, now somebody listening and hearing this description might say, okay, so that's the hospital side. Might that sort of system though encourage physicians or others who aren't covered directly by hospital budgets to find a way of revenues flowing into them in some ways to compensate for the for the for the fixed hospital spending, and so what, what's the net effect on total spending? And it, in, in such a sure. System? So in Maryland, we did see a little bit of that, but the net effect was still very very positive. So what you would imagine is that some things don't need to be in the hospital. I mean, in a fee for service world, the hospital is like a magnet for things, especially if you can add a facility fee on top of whatever else you're doing. So the, suddenly there are all these mammograms being done in the hospital. Do Mammograms really need to be done in the hospital? Probably for most people, no. But if you can throw on a big facility fee, it's like you're printing money. You know, now you put a global budget on, why are we doing mammograms in the hospital or so many mammograms in the hospital, you can move that off. So that will move some of the cost off, but in the process, it can just generally deflate the balloon. And what you get is um, some shift from hospital to outpatient, but not enough to compensate for the substantial decline in hospital spending. So in Maryland, I think the uh, overall uh, spending on hospitals was down like 1.3 or 4 billion. And then it was a net $800 million, something like that, um, all total cost of care. And that's just looking at Medicare, but we're an all payer state. So you know we saw substantial improvements, not just for Medicare. Let's focus a bit, if we could now, is, uh, on Medicare, because one of the things that we often hear in some of our discussion, we try to talk about Maryland and say, oh, they have all those Maryland Medicare dollars in their system by special uh, agreement with the government. In fact, a significant amount of dollars, more than they might get if they were not under Medicare, if they were in that system. Can you talk about whether that's true or not and, and uh, um, your reflections on that? Sure. So I think what people are referring to is the fact, like I said earlier, that in Maryland, Maryland actually set the rates that Medicare paid. And the way I would describe this is in like 49 states in the District of Columbia, Medicare would pay Medicare rates. But in Maryland, Medicare would pay Maryland rates. And that's pretty um, good deal. You know, it's in a sense what Maryland did have in the past, I'll explain why I don't think it's quite the same now, is a kind of key to the federal treasury, right? You can charge what Medicare is. Now, that key came with two strings attached that are very important to understand. One of them is that the rates charge had to be the same among all payers. So if that rate sitting commission had come, come together and said, you know, it's kind of harder to take care of patients 75 and up, let's double the rates for them. Medicare would have backed out. You know, they would have said, that's not fair. Um, uh, as a as a way to do it, and um, the um, the other one, and you know, just what what that also meant was that 
there's no like ability to cost shift between payers. You know, the hospitals have to live with the rates, what they are. So, you know, it's not quite the same in other states where Medicare is less, but suddenly they're charging five times the amount to other insurers. The second string attached was that Maryland's rate of growth in the prices it could charge per admission couldn't exceed the national rate of growth in the Medicare program. So I'll say that again the price per admission couldn't grow faster in Maryland. So the idea was like federal government was saying, okay, Maryland, you can have somewhat higher prices, but you, they can't grow as fast. And you know that, that was one reason why Maryland had pretty slow price growth. In fact, by, at some points, the slowest price growth in the country. Um, in the end, Maryland's healthcare system wasn't the most expensive if you looked at all payers. I think Maryland was like 15th to 20th. But for Medicare, it was higher because the rates were higher in Medicare. So Medicare maybe didn't get that great savings. Overall, Maryland didn't look like Massachusetts for cost. So it was lower. Now, that's all before we switched to global budgets. You know, And when we switched to global budgets, we weren't just talking about the prices per admission. We're talking about total hospital spend and actually real savings, You know, not just savings that on price, but not necessarily volume. This is price times volume saving. This is the real thing. This is inpatient and outpatient. Inpatient well. and outpatient hospital spend. And so, you know, and total cost of care monitoring. So we're seeing like serious, you know, reductions against the national trend, serious reductions against matched control groups. And ultimately, you know, the goal is really to bring Maryland down within Medicare, but while doing that, bring the entire cost structure down, because unlike other places, you bring Maryland down, you bring down Blue Cross, you bring down, you know, Kaiser, you're bringing down everything. And so the, the goal is really to um, have a much more sustainable healthcare system. Medicare is, you know, and has been paying a little bit more than it otherwise would, but it's for a goal that is very, uh, I think, worthwhile. And that extra that Medicare is paying is going away. So, um, so in Maryland, the game is significantly focused on Medicare. In most other states, including Massachusetts, the game is focused around Medicaid and trying to get more money out of Medicaid through what's sometimes referred to as dish funding, disproportionate share hospitals, or the various Medicaid waivers like Section 1115-1115 waivers. Massachusetts has gotten enormous additional federal money over a good 25 years now uh, from the federal government. Does Maryland also get special deals on Medicaid or is it kind of one or the other? How is that? Yeah, it's, it's not, not at all like Massachusetts. Um, Massachusetts has, I think, done better in that regard, but it, or done more in that regard, I should say. But I think it's important, you know, and to say that the way that Maryland's um, financing is structured now is that it really isn't a move to get more federal money. I mean, it's a move to be more organized. I, I think that there might be some fair criticism of the rate setting system when it was fee for service, um, that it was quite um, generous on the Medicare side. It's getting less and less generous on the Medicare side with the global budget, but uh, it is you know, creating such a different environment for hospitals that I think people are really paying more attention to Maryland now that it isn't about just the financing. It is about, you know, what healthcare can be doing. Josh, you've, you've trained in Massachusetts. You've worked in most of your career in Maryland. 
And one of the things you know, I'm wondering is when you are in Maryland, where you have, I think it's fair to say, two major academic medical centers, Johns Hopkins, by far the largest, and University of Maryland. And we in Massachusetts, as you know, have a whole slew of, of, of academic medical centers and such. How different, for example, um, is Maryland's in total environment in that way or other aspects structurally um, that make your model's ability to be replicated in other states like ours uh, impacted, would you say? Well, you know, when I was, uh, I actually grew up in, in Maryland and our Maryland module in like social studies was called like America in miniature. You know, we have rural areas, we have urban areas and the healthcare, we have academic centers, we have suburban hospitals, we have some small hospitals and a couple really tiny hospitals, but not that many. But we have a little bit of everything. And so I think that there are a lot of in, uh, potential lessons. Now, you know, it's, um, it's hard to snap your fingers and turn another state into Maryland. Um, and there are a few, few reasons for that. Um, I think that uh, we're probably looking at like a healthcare system inspired by the Maryland model rather than exactly the Maryland model in other places. Something that I think is important to think about is, is to think regionally in other states. What we've seen, you know, Pennsylvania has adopted global budgets in rural areas. I think rural areas are particularly um, easy to think about global budgets uh, when you don't have rate setting. Um, but there are also some urban areas around the country that are considering um, that a global budget approach um, without rate setting explicitly. Um, but you know, I, I think it may be hard to do a whole state because you've got to figure it out without rate setting across multiple different kinds of systems. Do you think there's value for a state? Like, and you said both Maryland sort of started this way, and I think as you mentioned, Pennsylvania to maybe look at smaller, maybe more financially challenged institutions, like in our state who often have to go to the legislature every year or two to get additional bailout dollars. Those are the sort of a ripe group to think about such a concept for? Exactly, for multiple reasons. One is that you know the, federal, the, the state government in that case for bailout dollars is really just spending money to keep a healthcare institution afloat. They're not spending money to invest in the health of the community. Like that's fundamentally why we have hospitals. You know? And what you'll see is some of those areas with the most distressed hospitals have the most distressed populations. Think about the rural rate of suicide, the rural rate of overdose, you know, the um, chronic illnesses that can exist. And when you're just paying to keep the doors of a hospital open for infrastructure, you're not really tackling those problems at all. Now you switch to a global budget and you create a very different incentive for the hospital. The hospital does better financially, the fewer people that need preventable services. And so, you know, suddenly you might have a pulmonary rehabilitation service you didn't have before. The economics of different things, it's not just what can we bill, but what can we prevent by doing things? I, I was involved in a meeting uh, with the Pennsylvania CEOs thinking about going into the Pennsylvania rural model. And I brought a couple Maryland CEOs. And I'll just say in this group, they had a particular demographic, all the CEOs, like they all kind of look like each other. I might describe that as like the 35th reunion of the Penn State offensive line if you know what I mean. Like it was just a certain look to them. They were pretty substantial people, um, but they sounded very differently. And the Maryland people, the, the guy said, look, I used to meet with my COO and every day we would say our CFO and say, how do we get more patients in here? And now I'm saying, how do we get fewer patients in here? And we've created 
nurse on the corner and we're giving out food and we're checking people's blood pressure and we're doing extra follow visits and all these things I never thought we'd be doing before. And the, you know, Pennsylvania CEO is just like, like dumbfounded on the other side of the table. Like, I mean, why, that's not how I grew up in the hospital business. And so I think that, um, anyway, I think that there's, there's, uh, a lot of interesting opportunities in rural areas. And then if you can find the leadership to see the big picture, this isn't just about cost. It's about doing better and, and aligning the health of the institution with the health of the population, then you can really get some excitement going. So, so Josh, Zeke Emanuel, Dr. Zeke Emanuel from the University of Pennsylvania was uh, speaking to our Mass Association of Health Plans last month. And he made the flat out statement. He said, Massachusetts and other states should look at replicating the Maryland model. Uh, Massachusetts started its own model back in 2012, which has a soft growth target for the state. And it seemed to work very well for the first roughly eight years. And now it's showing signs of weakness and we're having our first moment of truth in terms of it. But I have to say we had an earlier period between 1975 and 1991 when we had old style, heavy handed rate regulation. And I was in the legislature at the time. It was enormously uh, full of political conflict and gamesmanship. And it drove the legislature crazy until in 1991, the legislature threw up their hands and deregulated the whole thing. Is there something different you think you lived in Massachusetts and Maryland? Is there something different about the political culture and environment down in Maryland? Or do you think a state like Massachusetts could take elements of your model and uh, apply them in an effective way up here? Yeah, well, there are a couple of aspects. I, I think one thing is that there is trust between the hospitals that's been built up over 40 years of doing uh, a different kind of system where everybody kind of shared uh, a risk. In other words, if there was a big problem with the system, it affected everybody. And so people collaborated. And um, even though they were competitive in some ways, there was this basic collaboration between the hospitals. And um, one way to see that is that Maryland has, I think, the most advanced and successful health information um, technology uh, data, health information exchange, data sharing service. You know, it's very easy to look up patients in other hospitals, but there are all kinds of different services. Somebody's discharged from one hospital, shows up at the next hospital immediately, everybody gets notified. Any primary care doctor can get a snapshot up to the moment of where all their patients are, who's been in the hospital the most, all that's from data sharing that just relates to the spirit of cooperation that exists between the hospitals. The second thing is that there is some comfort with, with regulation and losing a little bit of control, you know, um, and that has come from, you know, having a professional staff, having a appointed group that oversees the rate setting commission of which several people are kind of um, put forward by the hospitals, but not the majority and a basic consensus in the state that we want the system to succeed and we want our hospitals to succeed. And so th there are some like, you know, unique things that it's hard to invent 40 years of history and trust in another state. Um, I think that's partly why, you know, I, I appreciate the idea. And believe me, if there were there, there were a state that wanted to go to Maryland, I would be all, you know, in, in helping them. I think realistically, what you see is that there's some hospitals that have done pretty well under fee for service and giving up a little bit of control to an outside entity 
you know, is not the top of their agenda, frankly. And they're going to be pretty resistant and they're going to use every political tool that they have to avoid some kind of, you know, um, constraint on their revenue growth. And so um, I think that the way to start to gain confidence with this is perhaps through regional, you're getting my opinion, through more regional approaches where people really are, do have their backs up against the wall, but there really is a positive value. It's not just about avoiding the pain of bankruptcy. It's about the positive value of being able to roll out new programs to the community, to be about prevention, to be allied with, you know, people against overdoses and suicides and other things like that. I think that that makes this bigger than just about, you know, uh, costs and money moving around. And I think it's a political strategy, not just a public health strategy. I want to build a little bit, though, on what you said. And I, and I hear what you're saying from a, you know, a public health, even social determinant perspective. But the, the issue of the day in our state, if you ask the health policy commissioners or, or other stakeholders, they say, gee, you know, the the eight, nine year experiment that we've been having is starting to fray, as John says, hospitals are asking for double digit price increases with their commercial insurers. We still have a significant price variation where our largest, most prestigious systems get paid much, much more than the average. We now have uh, Children's Hospital and Mass General Brigham and Faulkner adding a combination together of 250 inpatient beds as they re rebuild their physical plant. And they have about $800 million of ambulatory care expansion proposals into suburban communities, um, which will gather more market share for them likely and, and possibly referrals. Are global budgets a way to deal with some of that challenge that people who are worried about sort of the continuing spending pressure that happens when you have systems like that, that, you know, have, as you say, increasing revenue desires. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that global budgets are going to avoid some of the hard questions that that kind of revenue growth poses for an economy really, you know, and can the economy really support that level of spending on healthcare services above and beyond what you really need to spend. Um, that I, I don't think there's like a way to avoid some difficult, you know, issues there. But, you know, I think you can look at Maryland and say, you know, Johns Hopkins has thrived under a glo uh, under global budget. It's done fine. Um, and it's thrived under rate setting that regulated entities actually get some protection from certain types of things that can happen to them. Um, and ultimately, you know, Maybe there's all this extra money for big systems just to ring out of everybody else. But, you know, at some point, maybe the music starts to stop and that creates an opportunity. If I think we might have missed a little bit of an opportunity with COVID, you know, as the um, volumes went way down, you know, um, to a large extent, the federal government wrote a check to the healthcare system. But will volumes come all the way back up? You know, will there be, you know, different um, types of reasons why people aren't as sick from infectious disease because we're all wearing masks or, you know, something else, you know, happens that actually the, the just fee for service engine just can't keep running. Um, I think that, you know, the, the opportunity is there to say to people like the alternative isn't, you know, you're not a shark. It's not move forward or die. You know, there, there you can be a different kind of species and think about your relationship with your community still doing cutting edge work, like, Mass General and Brigham need to do, and other, you know, academic, Beth Israel, Deaconess, everyone. But, you know, um, 
but at the same time, really feel like part of your responsibility is to make your communities much healthier and um, shift gears to a different type of reimbursement for the vast amount of hospital care that you're providing. You know, we know the research innovation um, efforts of our hospitals are, are incredible. And while they get grants for a lot of it, at least in our state, they get some of the ability to spend monies in that area off of patient care dollars. Is, is the global budget set up in such a way, for example, that Johns Hopkins is able to glean additional monies which from, from the global budget for patient care, which they can, in essence, are using for expanding research budgets and the like, or, uh, or is that not clear yeah. if they're able to do that? Well, um, it's a, a somewhat complicated answer. It's not the same as a fee-for-service hospital that's just making a lot of margin and just turning margin into whatever they want to spend it on. Um, but there are special provisions for innovative health services that create um, support for continuing and expanding them in hospitals like the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins. Okay. Well, well Josh, you've taken us uh, in different directions uh, with your answers as, as we tried to pry with you. We really appreciate your coming and joining us today. And I think our audience is really going to have a lot to think about uh, after they hear uh, you describe uh, what's going on in, in Maryland for a good number of years now. So thank you very much for joining us today. All right. Take care. Thanks, Josh. Thank you.